Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon or good evening, depending upon where you are when you hear this. Could be actually, this could be good morning. In any event, uh, this is Dr. Simon, and I wanted to extend my story about psychotherapy, um, the type of psychotherapy that I put in quotes. I put quotes around therapy because, as I spoke about uh, two weeks ago, um, it's been my goal for a very long time to create um, an alternative view of human suffering and what to do about it uh, than what has emerged um, in the last 50, 60 years based upon the psychiatric model of uh, mental illness and mental disorders that uh, I feel uh, is and has been incredibly destructive to both individuals and to the society which has embraced it. Uh, uh, I've made many criticisms about it, uh, about psychiatry. Uh, Last week, two weeks ago, I had the pleasure of discussing uh, a book that a colleague and friend of mine who is a psychiatrist had uh, uh, told me about called The Book of Woe, uh, The DSM and the Death of Psychiatry. Uh, in which uh, I pointed out that I no longer ever have to go through a um, uh, uh, a logical argument to show why there cannot be anything called mental illness. If, in fact, someday we find out that all the aberrant thousands of behaviors that go into the DSM are uh, caused by a neurological problems, there will no longer be um, uh, mental illnesses, there'd be physical illnesses. There'd be no different than epilepsy or any other kind of problem with the brain that causes a, a dysfunction, a malfunction in human behavior. But the fact of the matter is, uh, as Alan Francis, who developed the DSM-3 and 4, uh, I think it was 4, the big one that's been around for about uh, many years now that I've been using for many years, said it's uh, bullshit and a noble lie and that it should never have been reified. That is, the so-called illnesses are constructs. Uh, There is no basis for saying they are real medical illnesses. But since we do so much good for people, uh, let's keep it the way it is. It's a lie, but it's a good lie. Uh, And I have suggested that it's not a good lie. Uh, There are very few good lies. Uh, Well, sometimes it's good to lie. If somebody broke into uh, your house and asked if your mother was home, I'm here to kill her, he said. And you said, well, she's sleeping upstairs. I cannot tell a lie. Uh, I'm not sure that that truth uh, would go over well with most people. Uh, Saying she's not home and lying, I think uh, sometimes you have to do that. But uh, the DSM is quite different. And last week I pointed out and spent some time to discuss that what is missing from the DSM uh, is is the sense of what is mentally healthy. Uh, All you can be is mental illness. I I forgot to tell you the standard joke about psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, particularly analysts, uh, who find the the goods on, the, the disturbance in people. And there's no way anybody ever comes out psychologically healthy because we don't think in those terms. 
uh, we're trained to think about making diagnoses uh, because there's an illness, there's a problem. So if somebody comes to your office early, uh, it's clear, according to the psychologist, that they're anxious. If somebody comes late, it is clear that they're probably hostile. But if somebody comes on time, that's plenty of evidence to suggest that they're obsessive-compulsive. Now, it's a joke, but really there is no joke here because that's how the system works. And I suggested last week, just to recap, or two weeks ago, just seems like last week, that the... the um, the notion that there is no uh, mental health uh, limits what you could look at. And if, in fact, these diagnoses are not medical, then they're moral. Uh, and that defining mental health has to be done in terms of uh, moral terms as well. And I suggested that um, we look at psychotherapy, the kind that I believe in, as helping people develop what for them would be a good life, uh, a rich and satisfying life, I suggested that creativity is extremely important. And what I want to do tonight is increase or go on and, and add to the really desultory, sad state of psychiatry and psychology based on this medical model uh, of looking for what's wrong with people. Because not only doesn't look not look for what's right, it simply doesn't exist within the system. Not only doesn't it define or help people define what is a good life or what would represent a better life and a more moral life than the one they're living, and they're not always uh, uh, overlapping what's good and what's moral, but in large measure, in many measures, they do. But what's missing from the system is any sense of human development. People can also be seen, and human beings, as the end product of their development at any given moment. And that an individual who is in serious trouble with other people and with the world around him and with him or herself uh, didn't wake up one morning because like they caught a cold um, or developed a cancer or found out that a cancer was developing because that, that, that's true, there's development there, um, but that there was a great deal of historical information and development that had to do with where they are at this moment. And I want to discuss certain aspects of development with you tonight um, which, if you go to find yourself a psychotherapist, where the quotes are around the word therapy, and that you're going to demand of them uh, that uh, they are transparent with you, uh, that they make no judgments, that they don't share with you, that you differentiate between medical judgments and moral judgments, that if, in fact, a medical judgment is being made, uh, then there are blood tests or, or uh, uh, electronic tests or uh, x-rays or something that proves that there is an underlying problem uh, that's neurological or, or uh, hormonal uh, that is contributing to your difficulty. 
if in fact we're dealing with psychology and and the way a person uh, functions in terms of solving their problems and satisfying their needs, which I'll get to again in a moment, uh, then we really need an analysis of how they go about living their life, uh, what is the history of this, uh, what are the biological underpinnings as much as we know them, and I believe that a good psychotherapist uh, bases his work on the best in biology, including the idea that we are a developed creature through evolution and that our nervous system is programmed uh, for certain kinds of sensitivities uh, and certain kinds of stimulation. For example, evolution has made our taste buds uh, susceptible to finding fats and sweets um, <clears throat> delicious, uh, if not nutritious, but delicious. Um, and, and, and so much of our overeating and our behavior as it's manipulated by the food companies and by the fast food restaurants uh, operates on the fact that we are biologically, through the process of evolution, susceptible to eating more fats and sweets uh, than uh, otherwise. Now, I'm not going to go through the theoretical development of that, um, but we are a biological, embodied, psychological being. In addition to which, the uh, idea of our development can't be uh, um, ignored in terms of our social relationships. Uh, we need to understand uh, what kind of a society we live in, what kind of school we went to, the teachers we had, uh, the, the church we go to, the message from our clerics, uh, our parents. Uh, psychoanalysis always dealt and deals with what happened at home uh, and the kind of infancy we had, the kind of maternal care we had. Uh, while there was a good deal of prejudice involved in this at least it worked its way into the system which can't work its way into the fact that um, uh, we look at ourselves as having a mental illness and saying this is some kind of a biological problem that pills can 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 fix yes we could be made more comfortable by uh, drugs i'm not against drugs although i'm against calling a drug uh, to change our attitudes and our behavior um, a medicine, it's a drug, it's no different that the doctor is prescribing it and it's legal. It really is no different than uh, smoking some marijuana or drinking alcohol or sniffing cocaine. Uh, all of these have been around for thousands of years and people have used them uh, in many ways effectively uh, or, or damaging themselves with these drugs uh, to change the way they perceive the world. And uh, in order to understand uh, a person, we have to go beyond the idea uh, that our brains require some kind of uh, jolt to our serotonin. Uh, and we have to really look at our development in some kind of a deeper way from a social point of view. Uh, there is no ignoring sociology, the sociology of our lives, or the economics, or the politics. And I want to spend a good deal of time tonight also on our education, because education is critical to who we are in terms of our development. So I believe that therapy is a form of education, 
And some time ago, uh, maybe 10 years, time goes so fast with me that uh, I don't really remember, maybe 10 years, uh, one of the large insurance companies stopped paying for uh, psychoanalysis, claiming it's not a real therapy, it's not a medical issue, uh, medical procedure, it is a form of education. And I applaud that. Um, I applaud that even though if we stopped lying, uh, if the insurance companies agreed with my analysis that psychotherapy is more educational and social and political and economic uh, than it is a medical procedure, uh, that the self can't be reduced to its biology, even if the self uh, wouldn't exist and is shaped to a degree, to a large degree, by our biology, the field would cease to exist overnight. Uh, the only people who would come for psychotherapy uh, or therapy would be individuals who um, um, could pay the price without any kind of health insurance. And the staggering number of people, psychologists, social workers, nurses, counselors, as well as psychiatrists, who all feed off the insurance companies, uh, um, including the federal insurance companies, for their living, uh, would cease to exist. Either the field would reorganize itself along lines that I think would be more honest, uh, uh, more educational, more developmental, uh, less based on noble lies and bullshit, um, although there would still be plenty of bullshit around to, you know, to go around, uh, because um, you know, I'm not sure we'll ever fully understand ourselves or, or why we function what we function, but it would be, I think, a step up uh, if we were jolted into actually looking uh, as we, at one time we tried to, at some of the developmental and psychological and social issues that shape us, uh, requiring a change in our environment, in our relationships, and as I want to talk about in a moment, the skills with which we use to understand and uh, satisfy our lives. I've never heard a psychiatrist, and I've never heard very few psychologists, talk about the development of skills. Last week, I suggested that uh, you're not fully mature and living a good life unless you're a citizen who votes, uh, and I believe that. Uh, but I do believe uh, that uh, skills and the hard-fought and hard-won skills that make us creative and allow us to live effectively uh, are critical, and they can't be ignored. And yet the word skill doesn't work its way into uh, the idea of what might be wrong with individuals because most of the individuals I've worked with who for a variety of reasons lack certain critical skills to live a good life. They lack skills. They lack skills to earn a proper living. They lack skills uh, to enjoy themselves uh, in sports. They lack the skill to become creative artists or writers or chefs, uh, these things have to develop. So, uh, a good psychotherapist sees things developmentally, and development is not simply quantitative. It is transformational. It is qualitative. It's not merely that as an adult 
we may know more than when we were children, but we may know differently than when we were children. And notice I say may, because my own theory of the kinds of behaviors that so often become um, 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 labeled as disturbed and disturbing and then go under the rubric of mental illness and disorder, the same behaviors are behaviors that uh, Freud used to refer to as fixated, a failure to develop certain critical areas of our life. Now, to make a little, to, to develop this a little bit, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Jean Piaget. Piaget uh, is one of the giants of psychology. Um, I think uh, historically he will be seen as important as Freud. He will be seen as important as many of the individuals that now are the mainstays from a historical point of view, the icons, if you will, of the field of psychology. And he pointed out uh, in his, his developmental uh, uh, research and he did a tremendous amount of research, that he believed there were four stages to intellectual development. There was the early stage in the first two years of life uh, uh, called sensory motor thinking. And then between two and five or six, what he called preoperational thinking. And then between seven and adolescence, six and adolescence, the stage of concrete operations where something really magical takes place in the formation of the way our thinking becomes operationalized and stabilizes in a very different way than earlier childhood. And then adolescence and above, formal operations. And when I first memorized these stages, and I'll go through a little bit about uh, the characteristics of this, um, I don't think I have to do, you know, I'm not going to do a, a show on, on, on developmental psychology a la Piaget. Um, it makes it sound as if somehow this is automatic. You develop formal operations after you develop concrete operations, and then you develop concrete operations uh, out of uh, um, pre-operational thinking, which develops out of sensory motor thinking. And somehow it's a nurture process rather than a nature, I'm sorry, a nature process, rather than a nurture process, that it's pushed up from below. And I have no doubt that the maturation of our brain and our nervous system makes us ready for these stages to develop. But I never like these stages uh, piled on top of one another. When I talked about Maslow, I don't like the idea uh, that the love and belongingness is below uh, pride, and pride is below self-actualization. Uh, it makes it sound as if uh, these are across the board and somehow there's a hierarchy of betterness, that somehow you're a better person for having moved uh, 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 from the bottom to the top. So I like to lay these on their sides. At any given moment, we remain sensory motor. At any given moment, we're capable of a great deal of pre-operational thinking. At any given moment, we can be very concrete and literal in our interpretation uh, uh, that guides our behavior. And at any given moment, in any given area, we can uh, show formal operations. And I think most of us are collections. 
Okay? And as a psychotherapist, I recognize that, that we are this collection. Uh, I played golf today, and I find that uh, it's something lovely and sensory about golf and tennis, two games that I really enjoy, even if I'm not the best in the world at either of them. Uh, and if I overthink my swing or overthink my game, it interferes. Uh, it has to be muscle memory. It operates on a really, in many ways, on a, um, on a sensory motor level. So it exists that way. Now, of course, the skills get better at a sensory motor level, just as little children, when they practice with their rattle, when they practice banging things, when they start to walk, uh, develop through and become better skilled at the sensory motor activities. The sensations stimulate motor movement. Motor movement produces sensations uh, that tell us where we are, where we're going, uh, whether we're upright, whether we're down. Uh, uh, and, and so the sensory motor never disappears. It's always part of our lives. Um, I can't imagine enjoying sex unless there is a great deal of sensory motor activity. Uh, and talking about it and thinking about it, especially during sex, really doesn't add, I think, a great deal uh, to our sex lives. Now, we get better at it uh, with practice. Uh, we know what to experience after time. Uh, we lose the newness of it over time. But it still remains a sensory motor activity. Now, when we start looking at the preoperational stage, it exists. And there are certain qualities to the preoperational stage. Uh, one, magical thinking. Uh, the child doesn't differentiate between thoughts and actions. Thinking about something uh, makes it happen. And so much of our belief in, in, in a god or gods and the belief that our thoughts can influence the world around us uh, without our saying or doing or acting upon them uh, remains in many ways preoperational. Uh, there's a lack of perspective uh, when we're young children. Um, uh, if there's a word for something, then it's real. That the children can't, young children can't differentiate. Uh, perception is very, very different. There's no perspective. The way things look are the way things are. Uh, so there's all kinds of, of uh, aspects of literalness when we're very young. And when I look and listen to some of the patients that I've had over the years that were diagnosed as schizophrenic, there's a tremendous amount uh, in their experience that I think is very similar to the experiences they had when they were very, very young. A lot of pre-operational, a lot of magical thinking. And I think delusion, hallucinations are somehow related to uh, the kind of psychological activity that does exist when we're one and two years of age, uh, in which it can be very, very satisfying not to differentiate between an external reality and our own internal, uh, 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 internal processes. We all hold conversations with ourselves. But most of us learn to differentiate between an actual voice speaking to us or our voice speaking out loud 
and an individual, uh, a voice, uh, that's a conversation within our own head. And I think that most, uh, the evidence is that most hallucinations are auditory. Consciousness is largely a set of conversations uh, that we have with others, with ourselves, where we argue, where we plan our conversations. We're going to go for a job. We plan what we're going to say. Uh, we may act out in our minds what our prospective employer uh, or somebody we're having an argument with uh, that we know we're going to have another argument with, uh, what they're going to say. And when we start to hear this voice, I think in many ways this is a kind of a failure to develop operations that permit us to differentiate between uh, the external and the internal. And young children do have this problem. Uh, for them, it's not a problem. Young children really have trouble when they wake up differentiating between a dream and a non-dream. Uh, and an actual event that may have occurred during the night. And I think many of us are prone to that, not knowing was it a dream, particularly if it's a very strong dream uh, and had unpleasant act action to it, uh, a nightmare. Um, uh, to, to not be able to develop the skills to make this differentiation, I think, makes us vulnerable uh, to all kinds of unhappiness. Um, I think the hardest aspect of our life to become really skilled at, at formal operations where we can abstract, where we can step out of ourselves and examine our own thinking and say things like, now why did I say that? Or why did I think that? Uh, the ability to have what Freud called insight, where we do step out of ourselves rather than remain boxed in by our own thoughts uh, is, is a skill that develops um, over time if it's allowed to develop uh, through interpersonal action and connection and education. Otherwise, it doesn't. And how many people can't uh, control their temper or can, can't control their emotional expression uh, because there's no way for them to step out and examine what they're doing and what they're saying uh, and look at it from a fresh perspective. To use an expression, I don't know where I got this expression from. Uh, it, it may have been booked by uh, uh, Keegan, wonderful Harvard psychiatrist. Uh, what's his first name? Robert Keegan in The uh, Evolving Self, a wonderful book that I recommend if people want to learn more about this the evolving self problems and processes in human development um, to own your own thinking now there are things we can't own there are things we can't get our minds around uh, we really can't know what it would have been like to live in a cave uh, uh, 10,000 years ago we live in our time now uh, but we become capable with development with maturation, uh, if, if it takes place, and that's critical, of asking, uh, how would I feel walking in this individual's shoes? Can I step out of my own ethnocentrism? Can I try to understand what it's like to be a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim? Can I understand what it's like uh, 
to be oppressed? Can I understand what it's like to be rich? Uh, we can't experience it directly, but we can ask that question. And by asking that question, there's a tremendous amount of motivation then to find out. But how many people do, do you know who can't step out of the frame of reference that they were given? Uh, I think I mentioned this before. I had students always, because I was sensitive to this uh, in my own development, uh, who can't step out of the social class in which they were raised. Uh, they're, they're embodied in it. They're, they're locked in. They can't even imagine uh, uh, what it would be like to make decisions as if they were not poor, as if uh, they had a right to go uh, uh, and live in an area other than the ghetto. Uh, and I mean that in terms of any uh, race, religion uh, that's enclosed, whether it's uh, forced upon them or whether it's self-selected, uh, to be trapped that way. And I think good psychotherapy helps individuals develop and own those experiences. Uh, children who have been abused, people who have gone through, uh, I hate that word trauma, but have gone through severe traumas, very often can't talk about it. They don't want to look at it. It's buried. But it's not really buried. They're living it. They're living through it because they can't step out and look at it. Uh, I, I, we were talking about this in a class some years ago. And one young lady said she had been sexually abused, but she can never talk about it. Uh, it terrifies her so. And I suggested to her that she look around her where she was now and look at the age she is now. Are you a small child now? She says, but I feel like a small child when I relive these experiences. But are you a small child? She said, no, uh, this could never happen to me now. I would know how to fight. Uh, I would know how to scream. I would know I have a right to to uh, uh, protect myself. Oh, I have somebody here. Let's see. Is this uh... hello? Oh, hi, uh, oh, Larry. It's Jim calling. Hi, Jim. How are you? I am just wonderful. I've been listening to you for the last half hour, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you quite frankly, it makes me feel like I'm back in the classroom, uh, and. Uh, I, I should be scribbling notes like crazy, but I've only taken a few lines. Uh, okay. And, uh, I, Is that I'm a good thing or a bad thing, Jim? No, it's, a, it, uh, it's well, it's, uh, I, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, as I said, I'm enjoying uh, your uh, discourse, and I hope you'll just go ahead and continue. But I yeah, I'm going to continue, but I really do. I would love to see under your name a whole bunch of other phones lighting up uh, and engaging in a, in a, in a more kind of, rather than my monologue, uh, much more of a dialogue, because ultimately I really do believe that education as a monologue is a failure, and that uh, real good therapy is a dialogue. You don't lecture your 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 uh, patients uh, as uh, we do our students. I, I and, absolutely and, agree with that, and I uh, agree with uh, just about everything else that you've been saying this uh, this afternoon out here, evening where you are. Yeah. 
So let me just continue with that story, and, and you could stay with do. me. Um, I held this young girl's hand. First of all, uh, when, by the time this was occurring, I couldn't hold a student's hand unless I asked permission to touch them. You can't do that. Otherwise, you could be uh, accused of, of uh, sexual abuse or, or, or of you know, all kinds of things. That could be the end of your career right then and there if it went to the dean of uh, faculty's office. And I held her hand, and I said to her, where are you right now? She said, well, I'm in this class, and you're holding my hand. I said, are you safe now? Are you safe from the event that happened then? And she was able to smile at that point, and she didn't talk about it publicly. But afterwards, uh, a day later, she came to me, and she said, you can't imagine how this has changed and turned me around, because I can now take all kinds of action that I couldn't take because I couldn't own the experience, I was still living it as if I was three years old and four years old when these events took place. Okay? And to me, that should be part of the heart of therapy. Now, I want to go back a little bit to, to Piaget. Piaget said development doesn't take place unless there's action that the individual takes vis-a-vis -vis the environment. And he called this action, uh, there were two kinds of actions taken. One is assimilation and the other accommodation. And for years I struggled to find something that I, I could, I don't even want to describe what he talks about as assimilation accommodation because it's so damn abstract. But it turned out that when I thought about it, I said assimilation, you take things in, basically when you satisfy your needs and your wants. And when we satisfy our needs, sometimes it's very, very difficult because the things we need aren't available immediately, or we lack the skill. Okay? And again, I'll use my golf game as an example. When I first started to play golf, I wanted to hit that ball, but I did not know how. And I couldn't own my swing because I couldn't see it. I didn't know where the club was when I brought it back. And anybody who's listening to this can think about events like this for themselves. So there was a problem to solve. How do you solve that problem? Well, accommodation is really what he means by solving the problem of not having specific sets of skills or mental operations, as he terms them, things we do psychologically to solve problems. Um, we can't do this sometimes unless we have a teacher. And that's why I believe a good therapist is, in fact, a teacher. Now, it doesn't lecture, but ask questions. Uh, provides a kind of a guidance through those questions. Did you ever think about this? Or what happened when? Uh, or what might you be able to do? And one of, one of the, the, the goals I always have uh, for people is to read, to go back to school, uh, the, 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 the profound change that takes place in a person's life when they really get embedded in learning situations beyond the, the uh, therapy room. Although the therapy room can provide a very wide range of, of non-coercive, guiding uh, uh, aspects of development. Um, so, so here we go. Uh, how do you develop these skills? Sometimes we really can't do it for ourselves. Uh, if I need my appendix taken out, I want to be anesthetized, and I want someone to work on me and not with me. 
I want it done to me <laughs> by somebody who's really skilled at, at, at what they do. Uh, much of the time when I look at why people don't develop the skills they need, it's because either they didn't have family and friends who supported them, showed them how, uh, didn't, didn't provide modeling to develop these skills, or they did it for them. The number of children that I saw over the years who were so infantilized, whose parents um, simply did everything for them because the very idea that a child would struggle to develop a set of skills, um, just amazing. And you don't develop the skills if you're made comfortable and made to feel you're really inadequate to develop these skills because rather than somebody work with you, and I'll talk in a moment about Lev Vygotsky, a wonderful uh, educationalist who talked about scaffolding and how to help somebody develop a set of complex skills, uh, you know, if you're the right teacher for those skills. Because if somebody wants to teach me the violin, I'm not sure if they don't play golf, they're going to help me play golf. We, we need an appropriate uh, educational setting. We need the proper teachers, the proper therapists to help us make these developments. So there were children who didn't develop skills through deprivation and children who didn't develop skills because of overprotection. Things, too much was done for them. And much of the educational system that I spent 40 years in uh, was very much bound that same, those, those same dichotomies. There were always great teachers, and good teachers really uh, set a set of standards and said these standards uh, are, are reachable, and this is how you reach them. And by the way, putting 60 people in a class, when I, when I first started at the college I worked in, there was 15 people in a class. When I left, there weren't enough seats in the rooms for the students that were being stuffed in because of budget cuts. We have one child at a time, and if we have two, we have a lot of work on our hands. If you have triplets, more work. Uh, and the old lady who lived in a shoe had so many children she didn't know what to do, the older children become surrogate parents to the younger ones because parenting is a very difficult, hard activity. Because, and, and why does childhood take so long? Why, why does it take so many years for us to grow up? Because the skills we need to be a successful human being are enormous. And so the back and forth between parent and child, between teacher and child, between all of the people who interact with that child as they develop uh, can either be uh, uh, deprivational or it could be overprotective. Uh, it could ignore the skills that the child has or actively try to suppress them. When I've talked many times about uh, the difference between an authoritarian parent uh, who says, or authoritarian society, it says, obedience is the hallmark of a good child. You do as you are told. The difference in development of skill, the difference of particularly social skills, uh, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? And if you dare I, I, uh, ever Larry, say that I, again, I'm going to knock your head off. Larry, uh, could I just uh, put Please. one thought in here? And, and that is that in, uh, during my...
my years that I was uh, in practice, one of the one of the issues that uh, kept impressing me was that, at least for some people, it wasn't a matter that they didn't have a particular skill or capability, but that they hadn't been reinforced for using it. And that one of Absolutely. the things that, that I felt that I did that was right with some of my patients was to uh, to uh, just give them uh, uh, sometimes not so subtle attaboys for, or attagirls for uh, using a, uh, a skill, uh, interacting with their kids, with their spouse, or what have you, absolutely, uh, in, uh, in ways that they hadn't done before. Yeah, that's an and, excellent point. And that point. would work better for them. Yes, yes. There, there needs to be a reinforcement, an appropriate reinforcement. By the way, um, again, there are there are adults working with kids who believe it's wrong to ever say that's good at a boy, at a girl. And then there is, I see this all the time now. I see this with my own children. Great. That was fabulous. That was wonderful. These kids are, are confused because they know when they look around them at their skill level, it's not that they're so fantastic. I mean, I have children. I have a granddaughter who has 110 average in school. Now, there's no doubt that she's very bright and she's developing very nicely. But what the hell does any child should have 110 average? <laughs> It shouldn't exist. What Vygotsky said, there should always be between the tutor and the child, between the parent and the child, between the therapist and the child, a gap between the standard they present and the individual level at which that child is now engaging new material or new skill development. Right? The gap shouldn't be too large to cause discouragement, but the gap shouldn't be too little that they think there is no further way to go. And, you know, it's so funny because the difference between intellectual development in our schools or watching sports when professionals play it is that there you see the gap. You know, the gap is enormous. When I watch a professional take an eight iron with which I can hit 100 yards and he hits it 220 yards and puts it down 10 feet from a pin, you know, from a hole, I know the gap between my skill and his skill is simply enormous. So we have to understand what the gap is between our level and have a standard that says this is what excellence means. And don't I sound old-fashioned, Jim, when I say that there's something in every area called excellence, including interpersonal skills, social skills? Well, I'm Th not there sure is something it called excellence. But it's, uh... It, uh, it, it sounds uh, wise and appropriate to me. Yeah, it sounds wise and appropriate, but does it really <laughs> exist? It doesn't, it doesn't play in so much of, of, of how children are educated or how patients are treated. Because the theory that we apply so often when we, we, we work with individuals, not in the system that I want to see exist, doesn't even have this language in it. We get the goods on the individual. Our job is to make the diagnosis. And the diagnosis is, unless it's a medical diagnosis, and then it shouldn't be me in the field making medical diagnosis because I didn't go to medical school. It's got to be, this is where you need a skill. I think I may have mentioned this story before. A young man who came to me couldn't get a date. 
and he had been diagnosed social anxiety disorder. There was a time we used the word shyness. Now, shyness doesn't explain anything, nor does social anxiety disorder and giving him pills, because the pills made him more comfortable, but they sure as hell didn't get him a date. They didn't get him laid, and that's what this young man was desperate about. He wanted a date. He wanted sex. He wanted to have a normal life. So we discussed at length, how do you might meet girls? Right? No one ever talked to him about this. Right? How do you meet a girl? I said, where do you meet them? He said, in bars. Right? And you've been drinking and they're drinking? He said, yeah. So you have started to meet a strange girl in a bar with alcohol involved. I said, how does that sound? He says, doesn't sound good because it's not working. So I suggested to him uh, that he finds, think about ways to introduce himself to young ladies in situations, whether it's a bar or not, where there's no alcohol, uh, and think about what the girl feels like when a guy in a bar comes up to her and tries to, of course, the expression is hit on her. How do you do that? How do you do that? And we thought, and he thought, and he thought, and he really came up with all kinds of ideas, and we discussed them. And one night now, he's in New York, and he went into a bar. Right? He sees this girl talking to a guy, and he looks at her, and he's like his heart jumps. Oh, would I love to meet her. So he goes to the bathroom, and he goes over to the guy, and he says, is that your girlfriend? She says, no, just a friend. When she comes back, can you introduce me? And they spent a couple of seconds talking, and they found they belonged to the same national fraternity. He says, can you tell her when she comes back that I'm a fraternity brother of yours? Not really a lie. Young lady comes back, and he says, hey, I want you to meet Shloimi. I don't know what his name was anymore, you know. And he's a fraternity brother of mine. He had a date with her. That night, he made a date with her. He was so elated. He was so full of joy and pleasure that he had tried something different than, than you know, walking around. I mean, wasn't the funniest, a guy I knew when I was a, still a teenager who walked up to a girl to dance, and she said, no. He said, fuck you. <laughs> that, that was a skill, right? <laughs> fuck you. Right? By the, time he, by the time the season was on, this was at 92nd Street Y, where they used to have dances, he walked into a room. If he walked to one side, all the girls walked to the other side. Right? And he could never overcome this notion. He, you have to smile. You have to say nice things. <laughs> you can't come on this way. This was not an illness. This was his adaptational way of solving a problem that related to the social pain and rejection he felt. In my theoretical formulation, in what I see a good psychotherapist in quotes has to deal with. Uh, what else? Let's see. Well, uh, can I, if I could just react to... Um, Please. So everything I appreciate you said, it. Uh, for the last 45 minutes or so, which I, I don't substantially disagree with, Although, uh, here comes the but, sometimes uh, we have to have an extended discussion, and probably uh, right now isn't the time, but sometime an extended discussion about what the, uh, the, the phrase that you used, medical model, really means. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, How about I, we, I would... my next show is this extended discussion of the medical model? 
uh, I'd be really happy to participate in that. Please. Uh, I'll tell you uh, what my belief in the medical model is, and you could tell me because you are within that framework and you write great books on it and you're well known for it. You tell me and see if I bet you we can come to some kind of an agreement on mind. Although what won't change is my view that I want to create a model that's free of all medical terminology. And I'll give you an example. One of the things I'd love to get rid of is the idea that if somebody had something happen to them psychologically, they need to heal. Guy goes into a theater and he starts shooting people. The first thing you hear them talk about on television is that healing has to take place. Uh Put the healing in quotation marks and I'll live with it. But then tell me, what do you mean by healing? Those events are transformative as far as I'm concerned. When you've lived through that, you can't be the same individual you were before. Sure. You can't see the world the same way. Of course. When soldiers come back from war, they have killed, they have seen killing, they have done things. It's a, a profound, transformative experience. Physically, they need healing. Psychologically, I think what they need is uh, uh, to come to grips with guilt, with shame, with fear, with rage, with a whole variety of human emotions that they never predicted could they feel because of what they did and what they saw and what happened when they went to war. Not the least of which is when they learned what they figured out, how much bullshit they had been fed about the glory of war and, and, and how great it is to be a hero. Yeah, and, and uh, certainly uh, I, I do not disagree with you about See, so uh, that's my goal in, in that sense. Yes. So healing, put it in, put it in, in quotes, but this business that you heal, uh, like I have a, 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 you know, I had a piece taken off my arm that was biopsied, and thank you for asking, it was, it was benign, it's now healing, and healing is really the word. I think it's a totally appropriate word. But having your house robbed and not wanting to go back into the house uh, and, and wanting to sell the house, as I know we've had a number of break-ins where I live, and people feel that way, uh, requires a, a transformative experience in how to perceive things because it was transformative to have somebody break into your house uh, to be raped. Is, aren't you aren't you speaking of healing in a, a metaphorical sense? Yes, though, but that's the whole point. Something quite quite different. Yes, and so if I'm going to use the metaphor, I want to know what it's a metaphor for. I want to know what I'm metaphorically dealing with here. Yeah. And if I'm going to talk and, about mental illness as a metaphor, I want to know what's the metaphor for. Right. And for me, the metaphor is pain, psychological pain. Uh, uh, and the inability to deal with it doesn't require getting better, but getting greater understanding, owning the experiences that happened, being able to change social relationships, being able to increase uh, economic uh, productivity in one's life. Uh, rich or poor, it's always good to have some money. You know, uh, as money, who said it? Money doesn't buy happiness, but it makes a very nice down payment. Um, <laughs> I wish I had made that up, but I didn't. I can't even remember where that comes from. 
uh, in any event, uh, why don't you and I uh, have a discussion? I, I, I'm not going to do this tonight anymore, and I think I have eight minutes left in my hour, and I think I've done enough. Let's see, when I go through my notes here, everything's all right. Okay. Uh, thank you for calling in again, Jim. I can't tell you uh, how... It's, really uh, my, it's my pleasure. It's uh, wonderful to talk with you, Larry, and uh, it's wonderful to listen to you even uh, even when you're in lecture mode because you're, uh, you're, you're very good at it. And I always well, I spent 40 years doing it. And towards the end, you know, I stopped lecturing. I really did. In fact, I have to do a show on telling you what I did how I, I really changed teaching. I, I allowed my students, uh, I would give them papers to write, right? And I would tell them what my grade would be, but only after they graded themselves. So uh-huh. they'd read their papers and they'd give themselves a grade. And at the end of the term, we would have uh, their grades and my grades, and I allowed them to pick the grade they wanted. Uh-huh. Now, if I, tell you, if I tell you the outrage... Uh, Why did I do that? I did it because I believe seeing yourself accurately in terms of your skill level, you see, uh, really is a necessary part of growing up. And we keep the grades wholly, H-O-L-Y and W-H-O-L-L-Y, under our control. And I think it has to be given up somewhere along the way. Now, there were classes where I wouldn't do this. I made attendance not mandatory. I, I, and, and this started out one day. I had asked the class. I said, you know, I, I want to pose a problem to you. The, the earth has been taken over by aliens. And the aliens are making all kinds of changes to social uh, structure in, in the world. But one of the things they say is education, as much as you want, is open to all human beings for as much as they want and as long as they want in all fields. Very enlightened aliens. However, no grades can be given and no diplomas can be given. I said, what would you do? 90% of them said they would never come to school again. That's, that's shocking. But think about it. My students used to say, I'm here for a degree. And they meant it literally. I need a degree. The better the university you go through, the better degree. I was watching PBS before. If you have a degree from Harvard, it's a ticket for a lifetime. Of course. So they were not there for the learning. So here you have a free system of education where they can get all the learning they want but they're not going to be told how well they do. That's going to have to assume for themselves. In the same way that if you go out and play tennis or baseball, you know exactly how well you're doing. And you know what the standard is because you see around you people doing better and people doing more poorly. But in school, that's not the case. It doesn't exist. It's a top-down authoritarian system that says the child can never be trusted with self-evaluation. And the effects were very profound. I had students who never showed up again. Right? And when they said they wanted a B, I said, I feel sorry for you, but take a B. I don't care. Yeah. Right? Now, people went wild because I'm creating havoc in the system. 
It's not fair. What about the student who's you know done all the work? I said, then the student did all the work. The student learned something. They're now in a different place in their development. They were in a different place in their life than they were if they didn't do the work. And that came out of my work as a therapist. Uh-huh. Because a therapist, you don't give grades. Particularly if you don't diagnose or you look at the diagnosis as something that has to be pushed aside and basically ignored when you're actually doing the interpersonal work, when you're forming a relationship and you're setting up a relationship uh, in a way to help a person develop skills and understanding and insight. It was really quite profound the last couple of years that I was working in. I only did this with honest classes. There were classes I wouldn't dare do this with, you know, because they just wouldn't be able to see it anything as, uh, I'm a lazy teacher who, who you know, who, who's doing this as a joke. Yeah. And I was dead but serious the, about this, because I think the, grades are an abomination. I, Tell I me. totally agree. The, the school, uh, the college I went to and the medical school I went to, Neither one of them, uh, well, they they had to give grades, but you never knew what they were. Uh, I uh, I left when I left college. I went to Reed College in Portland. Oh, uh, Reed! I've heard of Reed. It was a, it's, it's a very I, liberal, fine school. It, it's 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 extraordinarily liberal, and it's I think it's quite a good school. I'm uh, sure it I is. I never found out what my grades were, and then. Uh, all through medical school, I went to Washington University in St. Louis, and uh, they uh, they did not give grades uh, uh, except when you got your diploma. As uh, when I got my, I was a newly minted MD. The same day, they gave me an envelope that contained all of my grades for all four years of medical school. But let me and, ask you this: Did you get evaluations of your work ongoing? Oh, uh, absolutely, of course. You, you see, knew, because to me, it's the uh, evaluation. And this what needs to be corrected. And, and, and can you see the gap between what you're doing and what standard practice is or what, what, you know, what might you do differently, what might you do better? Of course. In other words, Larry, let that me, to let, me let is me critical. You, but this business of grades, A, B, C, let, let me, D. Let me ask you to guess what I did with my envelope when I got You threw it, it away. I did. I never of course it. you did. <laughs> of course you knew what it was worth. <laughs> yeah, to, to this to this day, I have no idea what kind of grades I got in medical yeah, school. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to hang up now. Okay, I'll. I thanks I'll again, and we'll be in touch. Uh, we'll talk with you next week. Take care, babe. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.